Hey, everybody, I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Dirty, John, you need a shower. Oh, man. I, yeah, after this episode, oof, we're talking about one of the worst, one of the worst white collar criminals of all time, Lou Pearlman. And it's just so gross because it's mixed up with boy bands and he's this like fat white guy. It's just so gross. It's gross. Just big, decadent guy who started off in the blimp business who. (laughs) Took a real shine to boys and boy bands. John, obviously, our our listeners might not know, but this one holds a special place in both of our hearts. Yes, John and I uh, did some time in the teen magazine trenches in the late 90s, right as the uh, subjects of uh, Lou Pearlman's uh, escapades were were just gaining their fame. Yes, we had no idea at the time. No idea, no idea. He was like uh, this master, the, uh, what's what's Elvis's uh, manager's name? Colonel Tom Parker, yeah. He basically was the Colonel Tom Parker of the 90s. And uh, I mean, there was nothing bigger than the boy bands back then. And uh, little did we know the absolute horror show that was going on behind the scenes. You just right. imagine these kids plucked out of obscurity and now they're millionaires and they're having fun and they're doing all this great stuff. Uh and we're subjected to their music and, uh, you know. <laughs> and subjected is a very good way to put it. <laughs> Sorry, all you Backstreet Boys and NSYNC fans. Yeah, we're going to get some hate mail on that. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, this guy was the Wizard of Oz. He was the Oz behind these boy bands and girl bands of that time. But it turns out that he was not playing fair. And, you know, like so many of these stories that we report on, it started off sort of legit, and then it went completely downhill. Um, and I am fascinated to bring on our guest today, Tyler Gray, who has written the definitive book on Lou Pearlman. It is called The Hit Charade, Lou Pearlman, Boy Bands, and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in U.S. History. Now, we wrote this book back in 2008, so I wonder, and I will ask him whether this still is the biggest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history, because there was another guy that came around a little bit later named Bernie Madoff. Mm. But uh, we'll find out all about that. We'll see who's who's the king of the Ponzi. Let's find out. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks, you guys. Oh man, Lou Pearlman. Tyler, you you this 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 subject very subject brings back a lot of memories for John and I, who, as we said, were we worked in the teen magazine trenches in the late '90s. So this yeah, this, this is was all happening spot. around us. I was pretty sure you were going to say that you were you had your own boy band for a little while. <laughs> well, I was in yeah, I was in one for a minute. Um, 
didn't go well. Uh, what was the name but, of that band? <laughs> yeah. oh, but the brainstorm boy band the, names. Good. Exactly. I need to. I need. I need a really good boy band name for that. Small Street, the Bad Street Boys. So listen, you know, some of our listeners might not even be familiar with Lou Pearlman because again, this is kind of a '90s story. They were certainly familiar with the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, but they weren't familiar with the person behind the boys. Ooh, that didn't sound so great. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so awesome. tell us, a, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, let's let's start with his background. Like, where did he come from and how did he get into this world of boy bands? My understanding is that he started off as a blimp guy. <laughs> It depends on how far you want to go back. Like if you go really far back, he was a, he was like a pudgy kid who got picked on a lot, you know, in the high rises of Queens. And he was a paper delivery boy and he told tall tales and he told everybody he was Art Garfunkel's cousin, which is actually true. Wow. And every good lie has a kernel of truth. And that was his, he dined out on that one quite a bit. And Art <laughs> ended up coming to one of his bar mitzvah, like his bar mitzvah or something. But, um, so Lou was that, you know, kind of kid who used sort of coming up with crazy stories to kind of make himself a little more popular than he naturally maybe would have been. And so um, that, you know, he had a best friend and they used to watch the blimp airfield out the window of his best friend's apartment, um, which was was nearby his his high rise and the Goodyear blimp would take off from there. And they'd, they'd go over to the, you could just walk onto the airfield at that time. Um, and, and they would get to know the crews and the blimps. Eventually, long story short, he gets a hold of this kind of ragtag blimp of his own that he promptly like turns around and like sells a sponsorship to Jordache jeans, for which you've never heard of Jordache jeans, like think acid washed, like light blue jeans that come up to like your, just, just above your belly button. Um, <laughs> like that was, you know, Jordache jeans. Um, and so they sponsored this, this like, you know, really pathetic blimp. And like, so Lou painted this whole blimp in the Jordache. He had it painted in the Jordache logo. And the paint was so heavy that as soon as the blimp took off, it did a death spiral and it crashed literally into a garbage dump. <laughs> so, and that was how he got to start in the blimp business because he then claimed the insurance money for like wow. a nicer blimp than he actually had. Like this is a trick being, you know, employed currently by ex-presidents. But um, but then he took that that over, over you know, payout on this blimp and bought a, a legit blimp and then like turned that into a business. Wow. Flip my blimp. What a what a racket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then he went on to start blimpies. All right. So his blimp crashes. He, he's the kind of guy that fails up, right? So even though... <laughs> It was a disaster. Uh, he still makes a lot of money off, and then he he then he trend he goes from blimps to to jets. Yeah, so um, he worked his way up the blimp business as you do, you know, <laughs> um, and and um, and you know he he did end up having like a legitimate business in blimps, and then he he started doing a thing where he would lease airplanes that he didn't own, and um, and he would book, you know, book trips on the, on these private airlines. Essentially he's like leasing the planes at wholesale and then renting out like seats on them as private charters to, to rich people. I will say there was a quick, there was a business before that is worth mentioning. He had a helicopter business in which he actually, um, you know, would take off from Manhattan and do helicopter trips for famous people. That was a legit business. He made a ton of money off of that. He could have been a successful businessman if he had just done that, but he wanted jets. 
So he started leasing these jets. He got in trouble when he started telling people he actually owned the jets. And then he started getting people to invest in these jets that he said he owned, but he actually just rented them. So it's like going to a U-Haul and getting a truck to rent and slapping your own paint job on it and tell people to invest in your fleet of trucks that you rented from U-Haul. Like it's the same thing. Jeez. (laughs) It's a cool story in the helicopter piece too. Like he kind of talks about having this helicopter business and or it was the plane business. I can't remember at this point, but he had, he had this, uh, this guy come and get on the plane and, and he, he paid in cash. It was like tens of thousands of dollars or whatever for the single trip. And he had, it was, it was a guy who managed a band and it was these young guys. They got on the plane. He's like pays in cash with like a suitcase of cash. He's like, Jesus, where are you getting all this money from? He's like, well, this, I got these guys are in this band, you know, it's like the young, young boys and like doing this band and they're super pop stars. And, uh, and that was Maury's star. Like who did New Kids on the Block? Yeah. I was invited to come down to one of the shows. All the screaming! I was like, "My God, what's going on here?" And these girls are playing these T-shirts and hats and chains and posters. I was like, "Man, this is exciting!" Mm-hmm. I mean, not to mention, okay, there's a tinkle to the cash register, no question about it. Unbelievable. And that that's Lou's story anyway. When I called, when I reached out to Maurice Starr, he was like, I don't know who the hell Lou Pearlman is. <laughs> that's how Lou tells it anyway. So that uh, was where the, the seed was planted. Supposedly. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I if that's true, I love the way it's just like I look out my window and I see a blimp and I'm like, I'm gonna start a blimp con- uh company. And then like uh there's a rich guy and he has a boy band. I'm going to start a boy band. It's like whatever's directly in front of his face, he just like gloms onto, it seems like. Yeah, whether it's like a business or a sandwich or whatever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, uh, before we go further, so you mentioned that's how Lou tells it. So you've hung out with Lou? You've talked with him? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we didn't like, you know, we didn't chill. but, um, But like I interviewed him when he first went to jail in Orlando. It was kind of a feeding frenzy moment. I was actually in New York. I was working for a magazine and I heard he got arrested. He got, he actually got extradited from, um, where was he in, uh, Bali. And, um, and he, he got spotted by somebody who recognized him and he was on the lamb at the time. And, and they, they extradited him back to Orlando, Florida, where he went, where he went to the jail, the County jail to await trial. And there was a sort of reporter feeding frenzy and, you know, when I called the public information officer, they're like, ah, oh, he's not taking any, you know, he's not taking any visitors from reporters right now. I'm like, okay. So knowing Florida law, like I did, having been a reporter there for a long time, I'm like, you just go to the jail and you put your name on a list and then you show up and then they come into a closed circuit TV situation and you talk, you got 30 seconds to sell them on why they should talk to you. So I did it that way. Nevertheless, and then that's how, you know, that's why I initially interviewed him and, and talked to him okay. for about an hour. And then got a furious call from the public information officer who was like, what the hell? And I'm like, I'm not trying to get special treatment. I'm just doing what I can do. Uh, and so you're uh, dogged, man. <laughs> and so uh, he was in jail. So I, and I couldn't visit him, but I communicated with him through his, and for the listening audience, these are air quotes, girlfriend. Um, mm-hmm. That was uh, his like longtime relationship. And she would, she would be our go-between and, and we, he'd tell me, you know, he'd tell me stuff through, through her. Uh, All right. Getting back to the yeah, story. So here. How does Sorry, he wind up there? Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, how does he get up? How does he get to Orlando? He goes to Orlando 
uh, now with dreams of maybe starting his own boy band. Yeah. And I think Orlando is where he really got the jet business off and running too. But then he, you know, he's got his dreams of, of doing his own boy band. He hooked up with a couple like key people who knew talent and were wired into the like Disney scene in, in Orlando and used them to help um, stage some open auditions where, um, you know, it was like a hot warehouse in Kissimmee, Florida, where he was just running through different uh, guys who wanted to become superstars, many of whom would come out of the Disney machine, like the Mickey Mouse Club kind of machine. And um, that's where he started to land on the guys for Backstreet Boys um, and, and you know, hooked up with some talent and entertainment folks who knew how to kind of work the system and and some folks who I think initially had connections at record labels. And, and that's where they started to get some interest, not first in the U.S., but ultimately overseas in Germany, where those guys really caught on. Now, do, does Lou have... Um you know, good taste in music? Like, can he spot, like, talent? Or were other people doing that and he just said, like, help me build a a band that uh, 13-year-old girls are going to love? And he kind of could spot talent. I mean, he had a lot of people helping him, but but he actually had an eye for talent. I mean, he you can't kind of go through as many popular or semi-popular artists as he did without without having somewhat of an instinct for it. I mean, he always wanted to be in the band. Like, that was his whole deal. Like, he wanted to be the star. It just wasn't fit for it. <laughs> Sadly. Like, nice, this, nice you know, things have work. changed. Yeah, I mean, things have changed, but he just, he he wasn't at the time. Like So, so he did, I, I will say that he definitely had a talent for it. Um, he was involved heavily. He had a vision for it. And, and that's, what's tricky and complex about him. It's like, it's not like he didn't do anything. He just, his ambitions were way bigger than his abilities. So he, he runs these Backstreet Boys through like, almost like a boy band boot camp. So he, yeah, he sets them up in a house, puts them on a diet. Um, you know, they're exercising according to his, you know, edicts and, and he, he, and, uh, and they're getting training and, and he's paying for everything. Right. And he's keeping a ledger too, because he's going to get that money back later. Yeah, and around this time, he also creates another boy band in sync, but he kind of like keeps them apart from each other, right? Like they're they're sort of like apparently the Backstreet didn't even really know about in sync, and he sort of like had this little side project that he was starting, sort of, and then and then later would have them sort of compete against each yeah. other. Yeah, exactly. It was brilliant. It's like first of all, like I was successful with this thing. I'm going to make a second one. And then it's like how men shop for jeans, right? Like you get a great pair and you're just like, I need five more pair. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, but it was the same with him. And then he was like, oh, well, you know, if you don't behave, I've got another one just like you in the waiting in the wings. And, right. And, and he just, he literally like replicated the, the model. So, so, so far he doesn't sound like, I mean, he sounds like a, a tough love kind of manager. What, what where's the, where's the crime tyler what was what was happening here yeah if you're just joining the program he's he's <laughs> used he's used money that was legit money from well sort of legit from a, a blimp business um to fund a plane business that wasn't legit he's using the money from the almost completely illegitimate airplane business where he never owned a single airplane but sold shares of ownership in many airplanes um he's using those profits to fund his exploits in in pop music land so all all the money that's coming in from his Ill, his illegitimate businesses are covering the cost of setting up this like pop star factory 
Um, so, so that's kind of, you know, a Ponzi scheme is using new money to pay old debts, new mm. investments to pay old debts, <laughs> Tesla. And so, um, <laughs> so that was what he was doing at the time. And then he just became, and what happens in any Ponzi scheme like that is like the new debts almost always outpace the old, you know, the money to cover the the old debts and you just, it starts to double up on you. And so he just got increasingly brazen with, um, with fake products. And in the end, what really got him from a criminality standpoint was that he invented an entire like investment product. Like he came up with this employee retirement investment savings accounts um, where he claimed because he was now running such a large empire of, you know, planes and blimps and boys and like the whole, he had this whole, you know, entertainment complex, he had a giant physical complex in downtown Orlando that used to be a train station and once a ragtime themed uh, tourist attraction called Rosie O'Grady's. Um, and he, um, <laughs> he looked like a huge successful guy. So people want to be like him, want to be associated with him. So he created this thing that was like a friends and family version of a 401k where if you give a, give me your retirement savings and I'll beat the average 401k or Roth IRA by like, I'll, I'll beat the, the returns by like, a, like five or six percentage points, which is a lot over time. And it was, but it wasn't so much that people thought it was crazy. So he's like, this is what I offer my employees, but I'll extend it to you. And then he just kept extending the circle that could invest in this fake product that had no legitimacy in any market or wasn't certified or insured by anyone. He did fake insurance certificates. And, and literally old people from Florida would give their retirement savings over to him to try and earn a little more money with him because he was this famous rich guy. And it was just fake. It was all going in his pocket. Yeah. I mean, that's where it's tragic because it's, you know, it's one thing to rip off banks, which of course is, you know, still a crime, but he's also preying on like people, you know, their retirement savings, like the small, the smaller people in the world. Right. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I mean, he was also yeah. ripping off banks, but, um, yeah, yeah, no, he was, he was ripping off banks. He was ripping off rich people too, but he was also ripping off like just common people. Yeah. Um, I mean, people who just dumped their whole nest egg, uh, in with him. Right. He was also pretty miserly with the guys in the band. Uh, right. I yeah. mean, he, he was giving them like $35 a day stipends. That was like, you know, meanwhile, they're making millions of dollars. Here's Lance Bass of NSYNC talking to good morning America. I was in the biggest band in the world and selling millions of records and someone's making millions and millions, but I can't even afford my apartment in Orlando. I couldn't even get a car. Yeah. They're like working for two or three years, touring nonstop, like constant grind of, of, you know, being on every TV show, radio show on stage constantly. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like throwing sod for a living, but it's like, it's hard and, and it does wear on you. And so they sit down at this one dinner where they're, they're like, okay, we kind of been living day to day. It's the first big payday. We had this like massive hit record. This is supposed to be the dinner where Lou gives them all a check and they're all expecting like, here's where I get super rich. And he hands out these checks to all the guys and they open them. It's like, I can't remember the amount, but it was like $10,000 or something. It was mm -hmm. ridiculous. And it wasn't, you know, and, and they just, I think somebody ripped theirs up. Um, they hmm. got up and were like, you know, and then that is really where a rift between the first band and, and Lou really 
set in motion. And they came to find out later that he was writing himself in as not only getting, he was paying himself not only as the manager, but as the sixth member of the band. So he was taking a double cut uh, and paying himself twice. Lou sued us for our name. He was the sixth member of the group and he owned the name NSYNC. So he took our name so we could never use it. And that's why we ended up in court. Wow. You know, John, what this, what this always brings up is, you know, when we talk about these people, these types of people, it's like, you know, there's someone who has like a genuine skill and an ability to do something. And it's just like, just if you just did the right thing, you know, he, he could still be, uh, you know, running boy bands, but, but he didn't like the, the greed just overcomes these guys. For him, I, I don't even know. Yeah. Greed, but I think it was something in a, in addition to that is deeply personal and psychological for him. He just had such a need to like be loved and accepted mm-hmm. and yet such an immature sense of that as well. Like this whole thing about him, like maybe having like inappropriate, like sexual relationships with, with guys in the band, right. In the bands, no one's ever been able to make that stick. Like no one's ever said he did it to me and come out publicly with evidence on that, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right, but, it, but it's a lot. It allowed him until his death to get off, you know, to to get away with maybe things, or maybe he was so immature and had such a weird sense of like adult relationships that it it was always creepy, but never quite went all the way. Right, right, yeah. But it, but it, it seemed to be loved was always sort of what was driving him. I think, and that you know, and like even when I interviewed him at first, he's he, was, he said what Ponzi schemers always say, which is like if I just had a little more time, everybody would have gotten paid back and gotten rich. Mm. But like mm. they always say that, and there's never right. enough time. John always says that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's my go-to. I'm kind of mad that you just called that out. <laughs> um, and also, like, let's face it. I mean. He wasn't like the most, you know, handsome man in the world and had some problems with his weight. And it almost felt like he was living vicariously through the guys. I mean, the fact that he made himself a sixth member of each of all the bands, or at least in Sync and Backstreet Boys, and was almost like considers himself like part of the band. Yeah. I mean, back in the day in Queens, like he did have a band that, you know, he or he tried to be in the in a band with some guys and you know, he tried to play with them, you know, and eventually they sort of said like, why don't you just manage? And, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of sort of, <laughs> you have a face yeah, for a man faded, faded yeah. a bit into the background. And, um, and, but, you know, when you saw like making the band, the show that was on MTV, where it was sort of all about some of the later boy bands that he did, he was always out there in front as like one of the, you know, he was, he was the, when you ask like, who's this guy, Lou Pearlman, like, if you think about the, like, significantly older not nearly as attractive like hanger on manager who's always insinuating themselves and like the young guys act and is like sort of they're controlling that's lou like there was mm. like colonel what's his name from elvis and, Colonel Tom. yeah there's colonel tom from elvis and then and then there's lou like in the modern age like who you're just like who's this old guy hanging out with the yeah, kids? yeah right. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, Lou uh, being extradited. So how did how does this all collapse? What uh, what tips the FBI off? So there was a moment when you know the pressure on Lou was getting really heavy. He's in his compound in Orlando, and like. 
people are literally coming to the door who driven over from Tampa or wherever like to, to ask for their to try to get their money back because they're hearing they're trying to you know pull their money out of this investment scheme that he's got because they're starting to hear things and he was fending them off constantly like at the door like keeping them out so finally he's he's desperate for some cash to try to do his next thing and he has an outside auditor come in and look at his books to, to, to figure out like where does this all you know can I can I squeeze any more money out of this thing anymore can I liquidate anything and in the process of looking through um, his finances this auditor like just starts seeing things that don't make sense like nothing there's this there's this firm that keeps coming up who's an who's an auditing firm called Cohen and Siegel and they were um, and they would audit his books and is and provide financial statements to people and he just saw really shoddy work. So he's in Lou's office while Lou's not there. And he's, and he's like, I got to call these people Cohen and Siegel. Lou had left the office and left his cell phone on the desk and like just walked out. So this guy, this financial auditor, like picks up his own phone and he dials the number for Cohen and Siegel. And as he calls Cohen and Siegel to ask about this shoddy, you know, financial auditing of Lou's books, um, Lou's phone on his desk starts ringing. He's like, that's weird. He hangs up. <laughs> he calls Cohen and Siegel again, and as he hears it start ringing on his phone, Lou's phone on the desk starts ringing again. So Cohen and Siegel with Lou, <laughs> he oh was his God. own auditor, and it was at that point that this auditor decided that his job that day was not to try to find extra money for Lou, but to gather as much evidence as he could carry out and bring it to the FBI. So that's what he did. Wow. And that began sort of a process of the FBI closing in on Lou. Lou got wind of it. He split. He went to Ireland for a second. From Ireland, he went to Bali, Indonesia. 25 years. And uh, was wearing one of his signature cornflower blue triple extra large T-shirts at the buffet when a tourist, a uh, German tourist, recognized him because big in Germany. And um, it was like, hey, isn't that guy on the run? And he called the local, the Indonesian officials wow. and said, hey, I've got this guy who's wanted in America. He's staying at this hotel. And they closed in and, and arrested him and extradited him. Wow. Do you know anything about the scene when he got arrested? Did he go quietly? Uh, yeah, I think he was a little whimpery, but like, it wasn't like a takedown, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't a say hello to my little friend kind of moment. Yeah, I don't think it was a chase. Yeah. <laughs> a very, very slow chase. <laughs> he didn't break out into song. <laughs> I, I thought it would maybe be a whole dance routine and... Bye, bye, bye. You know, it's a good, I think it was, he got, let's see, he got a month for every, what's 300 months? That's what he got. Okay. So he got 300 months. Yeah. Cause he got a month for every million dollars that he was on record as having stolen from investors. $300 million Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Wow. 25 years. Thanks, man. Th thank you, cal phone calculator. <laughs> So, but it doesn't stop even when he's in prison. He starts a choir in prison, I read. Yeah. He actually was trying to manage this one act from prison um, and um, just various different things. He, he, uh, he really kind of lost it a bit in prison because he was, um, when I was talking to him through his, his girlfriend, he, um, you know, he was telling her that like, don't worry, this is all a mistake. You know, they know I'm innocent, but they now they they're going to look bad if they just let me out. So they're you know they're asking me to help track down you know this stuff and like he's like and I have a record of it all because there's a 
a clone computer in Tampa that was logging all my keystrokes. Like, this is crazy. Like crazy talk didn't make any sense stuff that he would say. They tried to tell him they snuck him out for dinner like at night because they didn't want him to have to eat the prison food and they went to Burger King. But um didn't happen. Sounds very unusual. And he he so he clearly didn't have any remorse. I mean, if from your from your perspective, it sounds like he is somebody that is never gonna was incapable of having remorse. Yeah, he didn't he didn't have any remorse um at all. It was just sure that this was a, a blip. And that, um, you know, the way I got him to talk that day in prison was, was, um, you know, I, I told him where I was from and that was a reporter trying to do a story. I really needed to get his side of the story. And he was like, ah, oh, you know, my lawyers say I shouldn't talk. And I said, yeah, but you know, who's going to, who's going to talk about the legacy you left behind. Mm. And that was like, click. Ego. He, uh, yeah. Play it to the ego. <laughs> yeah. And so wow. he felt like he had, he still felt on balance, the contribution he had made to the world far exceeded the the misery he had wrought. Now have, uh, have folks like Justin Timberlake, have they commented about him? Have they said things about him? Were they, did they credit him for starting their careers? How did they feel about him? Well, I don't think Justin talks about him at all. Mm. Um, Cause why would he like, well, how would it benefit him to ever associate yeah. him? So right. I know Lance Bass has done a book. He's talked about it. Um, a good deal. Some of the other guys have talked about it too. And I think they are always a little bit ambivalent because they're like people know who we are because of this guy. Right. So and they liked detailed. him. I think early on they, they liked him. Right. I mean, he, they sort of looked up to him when they, when they just thought he was a big daddy Warbucks kind of guy and was like, yeah, they called him big Papa. Yeah. yeah it was like, and it was like, yeah, he's a little creepy sometimes, you know, he likes to give you an inappropriate shoulder rub, but like, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> My God. And I wonder, like, you know, having studied uh, his his criminal history, were there were there signs, people that invested with him, like, were there, like, f- big flashing red signs, like, do not invest with this guy, or was he pretty slick about fooling people? The thing about Ponzi schemes is that um, early investors do get paid back. Like, so there was always someone Luke could point to and then put someone in touch with mm. and say, yeah, he made me a ton of money and he did make some people some money in the beginning. So that's what made it tricky. And even toward the end, he could always kind of, he would always strategically pay back some people. So there'd always be somebody who could vouch for him. Mm. And that's why, and then, and then the brazenness of it all, like he, in, he, like on his computer created fake certificates or somebody on their computer created fake certificates for like Lloyd's of London and, um, and AIG, like certifying his investment product, which it, I don't know that I would have known to do any more diligence than that. Like, let me right. see your certificates. Like, you know, and, and if you just, if we kind of just, it reminds you just like in that, in that world of investing, you just kind of operate on a, a lot of trust and like little tokens that like maybe yeah. say something is real, but you can kind of just make them in Photoshop, right? Like, right, right, right. <laughs> which is what he did. And so the I was wow. like the sheer brazenness of it, and like no one wanted to believe the guy who started the boy bands was actually a multi hundred million dollar Ponzi scheme. Wow. Well, you admit, and so the title of the book, or the subtitle of the book, is the biggest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. Now, this book came out in two thousand and eight. Pre-Madoff. 
is pre-Madoff. So Madoff got the, got the, got the, but this is the second, as far as we know, this is the second biggest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. Yeah. And that's how I'm a victim of Madoff. (laughs) Yeah. God damn it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, Well, this is really interesting. Tyler, thank you for, for enlightening us about Lou Pearlman, who will go down in the annals of history as one of the most corrupt white collar criminals of all time. We should say that he passed away of a heart attack in prison, right? Yeah, he died in Miami in jail. He was a diabetic for a long time and just did not get it under control, not even in jail. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, he was young. He was in his early 60s. Yeah. John, I'd like to thank you because you sang Bye 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 and it has been rocking in my head this entire time. It's going to haunt me all day long. (laughs) Son of a bitch. Those, yeah, I can do the dance too. I'll do the dance later for you. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Tyler, thank you for joining us. Thanks, you guys. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.